Orleans is built on a fault line, and so are some relationships. The fault line. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Detective Charlie Egan called this morning. He has questions about an unexpected death and wants background information on someone from my past. The phone call has plunged me into a river of memories about my first trip to Orleans and how I ended up living here. Orleans is a suburb east of Ottawa, the beautiful and storied capital of Canada. Quiet, clean, polite, apologetic, bilingual, and increasingly multicultural, Orleans is a microcosm of Canada. It also happens to be built on a geological fault line. No big deal. I've felt the house shake once or twice, and one time, an earthquake knocked over a lawn chair. Nothing to worry about. But some signs we ignore at our peril. My first visit to Orleans in 1973 was on a day of firsts. It was the first Saturday in September. I was a first-year Carleton University student on a first date with tall, good-looking, and confident Mark Maple. At my stop in the university residence elevator after breakfast, my little heart pitter-pattered for joy when Mark, who lived three floors up, held the door open and suggested a bike ride. We could cycle along the canal, starting at the Hartwell Locks. Hartwell Locks, I said, confused. Is that where you lock your bike? He shook his head. Not from around here, are you? This was a tad annoying, but I kept my cool. Would I be living in residence if I was? He smiled. Good point. My folks live nearby, but I'm in residence for the away-from-home experience. The lock is the place on the canal where they raise and lower the boats. Right, I knew that, I lied, appreciating and returning his smile. See you there in half an hour? I managed a careless shrug. Sounds good. The minute the elevator doors closed, I ran to my room. I jumped into my favorite bell-bottom jeans and ruffled blouse. I touched up my dark hair, blue eyeshadow, and pink lipstick. Then I introduced myself to my next-door neighbor, Ainsley, who was on the phone with her boyfriend, and begged her to let me borrow her bike, a blue second-hand three-speed with a plastic basket on the handlebars that wobbled in the wind. I got to the Hartwell Locks, five minutes ahead of Mark, ready for anything, I thought, until I saw him pedal towards me on an 18-speed bicycle, his aerodynamic build encased in a stretchy outfit to minimize wind resistance. Beautiful day for a bike ride, he said, just a bit of a breeze to make it interesting. Let's follow the canal to the parkway, then head east. Sounds perfect, I said, and hoped for the best. Carleton University sits between the Rideau Canal along the east and north edges and the Rideau River to the south. Mark gallantly carried my bike over the locks to the eastern side of the canal and leisurely rode beside me on its wide bike lane, pointing out famous Ottawa landmarks like a tour guide. Parliament Hill, he said, when we got downtown, 
an excellent example of Gothic Revival grey stonework accented by green turret roofs, perched on a spectacular escarpment high above the southern banks of the Ottawa River. What? I said, huffing slightly to keep up. Did you just think of that? He had the grace to look sheepish. Coffee table book at my folks' place. Are you studying architecture? I asked. Nah, there's no money in that. It's med school for me, baby. That's where the big bucks are. I've wanted to be a doctor since I was eight years old and dissected my first frog. The other kids like to smash their heads in with rocks, but I liked to open them up. We turned north on Sussex. Coming up on our left is the centuries-old mint. On our right, Notre Dame Cathedral Basilica. And up next, the Eastern Parkway. Single file, full steam ahead, okay? I nodded. He pulled ahead. I puffed along Sussex Drive, a daunting cliffside road with cars and trucks whizzing by in terrifying proximity, past the embassies and historic mansions that overlook the Ottawa River. Mark zoomed further away. I followed his ever-shrinking image along the water, through the greenbelt, past the shimmering black RCMP musical ride stallions. I didn't stop to admire the horses. I kept going. By the time I panted by the exclusive Rockliffe Air Base, where millionaires swooped above me in vintage planes, he had disappeared. From the Eastern Parkway to the Aviation Parkway, to a bike path to a gravel road, I pedaled, legs aching, hot, and thirsty. Tempted as I was to turn around and go home, I chugged along, tried to admire the scenery, and hoped nothing bad had happened to him, like a flat tire or a kidnapping at gunpoint. Finally, there he was, waving to me at the entrance to the inauspicious new subdivision of Convent Glen Orleans, a quiet, ordinary maze of streets lined with, I thought, after seeing all those mansions and embassies, inexpensive cookie-cutter houses for the rest of us. I tailed him up a hill to the new mall under construction, where we got off our bikes and sat on a curb. He took off his helmet, shook out his long blonde hair, and passed me his water bottle. That was a good warm-up, but I'm looking forward to the way back. We'll be cycling into the wind, so that should build up some good wind resistance for us. Mmm, I said, drinking deeply to hide how sick I was of him, cycling, scenery, and wind resistance. Three teenaged boys, blonde twins and a taller, dark-haired one, passed us. I checked my watch. 2.40 was a bit early to be going home from school. Hey, guys, said Mark, can I bum a smoke? They stopped, gave him a cigarette, and, as he leaned in to light it off one of theirs, he smiled and said, School over early? We start at 8.30, said the tall one. An early start, I said, and they nodded. But still, it seems like a short day. It is if you sleep through your first two periods, laughed one of the twins. Short day for them, but a long one for me, I thought, starting to recover, but not looking forward to the ride home. I'll give you some advice, said Mark. Cigarettes cost, what, 75 cents a pack? If you buy a carton, it works out to 50 cents a pack. 
Get a carton, sell them to your friends, and keep the change. Sure, said the tall one, but who has money to buy a whole carton? Tell your mom you need a new sweater or whatever, said Mark. Ask if you can charge it to a credit card. The Sears card works. Wear the sweater once for your mom, then return it. Keep the cash, and that, my friend, is your investment capital. The boys laughed and moseyed along. Encouraging smoking, I said. A future doctor? He threw down his cigarette, stubbed it out on the sidewalk, and called. Hey, guys, smoking causes cancer, though, eh? Extremely bad for you. Without turning around, the young trio held up their middle fingers. It was such a surprisingly rude gesture that I started to laugh, and Mark joined in. And there... Sitting on the curb on the side of a road in Convent Glen, we had our first kiss. Until that moment, I wasn't sure I ever wanted to see him again, except that he was so good-looking with his blue eyes and perfect teeth. And then there was that kiss. He was also my first friend in residence, not counting next-door Ainsley, who spent all her time with her boyfriend. I had gone to university against my parents' wishes. In the Brancatella household, there was a constant chorus about what nice girls should and shouldn't do. Nice girls don't wear jeans, cross their legs, ride bikes, climb trees, or work outside the home. After high school, they could become nuns, or, if they insisted, nurses, teachers, or secretaries, until they got married. A university education for a girl was a waste of money. In December of grade 13, I quietly filled out application forms for Carleton, a room in residence, student grants, and student loans. I also shortened my first name from Amabel to Mabel. You can write whatever you want on university entrance forms. In February, I got accepted and bided my time. In August, I packed my bags wrote a carefully worded note, slipped out my bedroom window in the middle of the night, and got on a Greyhound bus from Toronto to Ottawa. Carlton's co-ed residence opened my eyes to a whole new world and introduced me to Mark, who was handsome, cool, and attentive. Incensed at my family's outdated ideas, He discouraged any contact with them. After a few months of dating, he also opposed my reconnecting with old friends, who, he said, were complicit. On the other hand, new friends, he loved to point out, were never as interesting, fun, or important as him. It's you and me against the world, baby. So we stayed together. In third year, we moved into our own apartment, creatively decorated with my second-hand store finds and his generous gifts to himself. His family was better off than mine and better educated, with values that seemed more with it than mine. Because his parents were busy professionals with more money for him than time, he had a casual attitude about finances that seemed glamorous and attractive to me. Not an approach I could ever quite adopt for myself, but nice to be around. Having rejected my family's values, I was a bit uncertain of my own. 
Sure, he shaded the truth sometimes with a bit of inconsequential bamboozling, but that somehow seemed sophisticated and modern, and he showered me with presents and compliments. The afternoon of our fourth-year graduation dance, Mark, looking gorgeous in a tuxedo, hung up the phone as I came into the living room, dining room, office of our apartment to get his help with my gold lame gown. He zipped me up, planted a kiss on my shoulder, and waved a letter from Revenue Canada under my nose. Look, I got away with it. I adjusted the spaghetti straps on the dress and stepped into my stilettos. Got away with what? Remember last year when it looked like I owed income tax on that summer job? I grimaced in the mirror and rubbed a tiny bit of lipstick off my teeth. Yes? Instead of writing what I owed into the amount owing box, I put it in the box for refund owing. Sounds like an easy mistake to make. Which is what I would have said if I got caught. And? They sent me a check. He picked me up and spun me around. A refund for the whole amount that I owed. We're rich. You look magnificent, by the way. He turned us back to the mirror. So do you, I said. Let's do something crazy to celebrate. I just called City Hall. They had a cancellation this afternoon. We're all dressed up. Let's get married. Which is how I ended up with the unlikely moniker of Mabel Maple. I liked it. Much easier to spell than Amabel Brancatella. Then there was another year of university, followed by four years of med school for him and low-paying jobs to support us for me. An office job by day and waitressing evenings, with barely time to eat between, left me tired and even a little resentful sometimes. But I knew that med school is hard work. I looked forward to going back to school myself. I wanted to be learning, stimulated, challenged, and surrounded by smart, interesting people. But for now, it was Mark's turn. I was impressed that he somehow found time and energy to go for drinks with school buddies, meet people for coffee, ski at Camp Fortune, work out at the gym, and even shop for himself. After all, he'd joke, showing off small extravagances like clothes, comic books, and collectibles. I've dedicated myself to saving lives. I deserve a little treat. Then, with a bouquet of flowers, he'd add, And so do you. There were also lots of so-called hilarious anecdotes about medical students playing with cadavers and experimenting on each other. But I never found those as funny as he did. Finally, I got a real job in the civil service. He got a hospital residency. And, in 1981... We saved enough for a down payment on a sweet little bungalow on Boyer Road, in Orleans of all places, just up the hill from Convent Glen, the site of our romantic first date. On moving day, Enrico, our real estate agent, planned to meet us at the house with the keys once all the banking paperwork cleared. We spent the morning moving out of the apartment got to the house just after lunch. We'd eaten our sandwiches in the car, but saved the thermos of special flavored coffee for later, and parked our modest second-hand Austin Mini on the street so the moving van could pull into the driveway. Mark went to admire our new property. The house was on the older side of Boyer Road, 
built at a time when every house needed at least an acre for the septic system. The tiny house boasted modern plumbing now and a big backyard, the best of both worlds. I leaned into the car for our box of essentials. The thermos, the kettle, instant coffee, tea, milk, cookies, and toilet paper, and noticed an unfamiliar perfume smell coming from another box labeled throw out. Curious, I lifted a layer of essay rough copies, course notes, and other old papers from Mark's hasty clear-out of his desk, and found a collection of love letters, about twenty of them, on expensive, personalized stationery including an address and phone number, to Mark, from someone called Shauna. The moving van drove up the street and past the house. The driver, confused no doubt by the layout of the neighborhood. Mark, I called. He appeared at the side of the house. If you want to tell me the moving van just went by, yes, I saw it. No, I want to ask you about Shauna. Shauna, my former study partner? What about her? I held up the letters. Former study partner and current girlfriend, according to these love letters from the throw-out box. I flipped through them. I love our little kisses. I love our big kisses. I love Wednesday through Saturday nights. Enrico, the real estate agent, pulled up in his Volkswagen Golf and parked behind the Mini. He hopped out and started towards us, then paused and cleared his throat. Marked turned to him, happy for the distraction. With a bit of a nervous laugh, he said, Hi, Enrico, do you have the keys? Actually, no, said the real estate agent. There's been a hold-up. What kind of hold-up, I asked. I deposited the two checks for the down payment, one from each of you. I'm afraid to say that your check bounced, Mark. We can't get the key to the house until we can make other arrangements. Oh, that's just a technicality, said Mark. I'll call my parents. Great, said Enrico. He paused, sensing the tension in the air. I'll go back to the office and wait to hear from you. He jumped into his car and drove away. Mark turned to wave at the moving van as it drove around the block once more, but I grabbed his arm. Wednesday through Saturday, when I was waitressing double shifts to support us and you were on call? You spent all those nights with her? Mark shook me off. Don't worry about Shauna. It's over. She's about to disappear. His abrupt tone took me by surprise. I felt a sudden chill. What do you mean? Is something going to happen to her? He laughed. Ha! In a manner of speaking. Tell me. An accusation of cheating. She handed in a paper just like mine, word for word. I denied it, of course, so now they're looking at her. He went to the curb to flag down the truck as it drove towards us again. I followed him. Did she copy you, or did you copy her? Does it matter? I got my residency, and she's on the carpet. He waved the van into our driveway. It matters to me. What happens if they prove she cheated? She'd get expelled, kicked out of medical school, sent home. 
the driver of the moving van rolled down his window. Mark offered him a cigarette. Hi, how's it going? I refused to be put off. Don't you care what happens to her? No, I don't. It's over between us, distant past, rearview mirror. Can we please just forget about Shauna and get on with this? Mark, I said, we can't just forget about Shauna. I'm not having this conversation now. And if you don't want me to talk to the movers, you can do it. He walked away from me, back to the curb where we'd parked our car. Are we doing this or not? called the driver, flicking ash from his cigarette. We have one hour left in this four-hour call, and then we're into overtime. We don't have our keys yet, I said, and looked at Mark, who leaned against the mini, arms crossed, not saying anything, giving me the silent treatment. We had budgeted very close to the wire. We couldn't afford to pay overtime. It was a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. Unload everything into the driveway, I said. We'll move it into the house ourselves once we get the keys. The back door of the van slid open. Mark watched in stony silence as the two men carefully lifted every bit of furniture, every box, every display case out of the van onto the driveway, then got back in the truck and drove away. If you really want to know, said Mark, I broke up with her as soon as I found out they were onto us. It was her or me. Winner takes all. I couldn't believe my ears. Still stunned about the affair, I could barely take in the off-handed admission of plagiarism, and now this callous egocentricity. Winner takes all? Is that how you see it? You don't care who gets hurt if you come out on top? She'll be okay. She still has a few tricks up her sleeve. Like what? She can turn on the waterworks, bat her eyelashes, say she handed in that paper by accident, promise to be right back with the real paper. The school has a lot invested in us. They want us to succeed. Shauna's a survivor and very forgiving. He chuckled again, and I felt like Scales were falling from my eyes. Forgiving? Mark, what are you not telling me? With a self-satisfied shrug, he took out a cigarette. Filthy habit, I thought. How did I miss so many red flags? If you know what's best for you, he said, lighting a match, you'll forget about it and move on. Forget about what? You cheated me, betrayed me, took advantage of me, and what else? He blew out a smoke ring. You want an apology? Fine, I'm sorry. Happy now? Did you do something to Shauna? More than getting her to help you fake your way through medical school? I pretended not to notice when she switched the coffee thermoses. He scoffed, taking his keys out of his pocket. What did he mean by that? And someday, he went on, you'll take your head out of the clouds and realize that people like you never get anywhere in life because they drive in the slow lane, under the speed limit, and obey every stupid road sign. He opened the car door, then turned back to me. You are a stuffy, narrow-minded, lower-class dupe who can't think outside the box, so fine, stay in it. 
And while you're at it, you can rot in hell. Then he drove off in a huff. And in our car. Was he ever coming back? I didn't care. I narrowed my eyes and bang, the car exploded. Alarms went off. Emergency vehicles surrounded the wreckage, but it was too late. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him together again. At least, that's what would have happened if I had magic powers. I also imagined myself sending a note to Revenue Canada on Mark's behalf, admitting to an error on a certain tax return, and inviting them to send an invoice to him at Shauna's address. I didn't just imagine that. I did it. But not then. At that moment, I forced myself to focus on the here and now. I watched him go, then plunked myself down on my treasured second-hand IKEA loveseat, surrounded by all my worldly goods, such as they were. There I was, lacking sufficient funds to get a key to the house, let alone pay for it, and homeless without it. I pressed my fingertips to my forehead and wondered what to do, determined to hold it together in front of the whole street. A couple of eight-year-old boys bicycled past. They looped around, stopped, and stood there, staring. Mustering some dignity, I gave them a frosty glare and a terse, Can I help you? The shorter of the two, a chubby little guy with freckles on his nose and a strawberry blonde brush cut, spoke first. Are you having a garage sale? His friend, who had a wiry build and a mess of red hair, jumped in. How much for the action figures? I surveyed my situation. Yes, I said. I took a couple of crisp two-dollar bills out of my wallet. Here, I'll pay you. Tell your parents, tell everyone in the neighborhood that I'm having the biggest, best garage sale ever. I am selling albums, cassettes, books, vintage comic books, designer clothes, expensive shoes, and yes, this fantastic collection of Star Wars and He-Man action figures. They spread the word. I sold everything and anything that Mark had ever held dear. I even sold a few things he had given me, like my leather jacket and a designer purse. I'd always wondered why charges for them never showed up on our credit card. Now I thought maybe Mark hadn't been above a little creative, debonair shoplifting. I ruminated on his comment about the thermoses, but I was busy, upset, and not thinking clearly. I put one of Shauna's letters in my pocket to mull over later. At the end of the day, I had $1,040.50. A neighbor let me use her phone. I called the mortgage broker. He asked to speak to my husband to discuss the matter man-to-man, but when I finally made it clear that it was my deal or no deal, he reluctantly listened. I asked for a bigger loan. I offered to pay a higher interest rate for a longer term. He would only consider it if I could come up with more of a cash deposit. I said... I could give him a thousand dollars more. He took the deal. I called and asked Enrico to bring over the keys. 
But before I left the neighbor's house, I paused, thinking again about what Mark had said. I pretended not to notice when she switched the coffee thermoses. What did he mean by that? I took out Shauna's letter and dialed her number. Her voice on the phone was so drowsy and incoherent that I hung up and called an ambulance. I found out later that she had put castor oil in her thermos of coffee, intending to switch it with his identical one to spoil our first night in our new home with a shared case of the runs. Mark, anticipating something of the kind, had laced the coffee in his thermos with sleeping pills and let her make the trade, hoping that she would sleep through her plagiarism defense meeting. But she was upset after their quarrel and took a couple of sedatives to help her face the committee. He spent the afternoon in a bar, then drove to her house hoping for a reconciliation, only to discover that she'd gone to emergency. So he drove there, where they had a romantic reunion filled with apologies and promises. And for all I know, they're still together. I left my neighbor's house, embarrassed by everything she had overheard. I paid my young friends $10 each to help me get my reduced pile of belongings into the house, and then the three of us shared a pizza. I poured the thermos of special coffee down the sink. It didn't smell right. I have lived here ever since. So, says Charlie now, I understand that you knew Dr. Mark Maple. My ex-husband. Yes, well, the body of his third wife, Astrid Maple, was found in the canal early this morning. Dressed for jogging, with an almost empty thermos of coffee in a backpack. It looks like a simple case of accidental death by drowning, but Dr. Maple had recently bought $2 million worth of life insurance for her, and he's insisting on his right to refuse an autopsy. He can do that? If there are any suspicious or uncertain aspects to the death, the coroner may order an autopsy which cannot be refused. Can you shed any light on the matter? Are you thinking he drugged her coffee, took her for a jog, and pushed her into the canal? Um... Maybe. I'm thinking you should analyze that coffee, test her for toxins, and check out Mark's alibi. Why? What can you tell me about him? After he heard my story, Charlie followed my advice. The whole matter is before the courts now, and he's confident that Mark will end up behind bars. And he won't be getting any visits from me. After that initial humiliation, I kept to myself and kept my nose to the grindstone, too busy for and leery of romantic entanglements. I was also too busy for casual friendships and getting to know my neighbors. People in other houses came and went. I kept my distance and my dignity. I went back to waitressing on evenings and weekends, in addition to my government job, to pay my bills and the interest on my student loans and the mortgage. Gradually, I moved up the ladder at work and continued my education until I could add a master's in public administration to my undergrad English degree. Eventually, I was debt-free and could even buy myself a car, a blue Ford Fiesta, my pride and joy for the next ten years. 
I like it here. I'm alone, but surrounded by people. The commute to downtown isn't great, but once I'm home, I can walk to a grocery store, a pool, parks, the post office, the dentist, and best of all, a library. At night, I feel safe, sleeping with the windows open, letting in fresh air. I love that at night, my street is so very quiet. Until it's not.